0: witty thought-provoking and uplifting southern soul Livestream is a program that you'll invite your friends over to watch every week where you'll learn about interesting guests and get to share in their fascinating experiences tune in each thursday evening at 8 p.m eastern to connect with guests from across the generations and to laugh with our eclectic host who are as charming as they are talented and now ladies and gentlemen here's our host calvin buy us a cup of coffee. And I love what the cup of coffee campaign, because the work we do is essentially created by volunteers and viewers like you. And even if you're like, what is that all about? Well, a cup of coffee is about $5, especially since we drink Starbucks, but you know, feel free to just uh, drop a cup of coffee. Let us know how much you appreciate the show. And I tell you why it's important. Why $5 is a long way. It's not just about the donation. It's about what they call the social proof, the evidence of People who say the work we do is valuable. So if you click on a link, you'll get to see some of the previous supporters and the people who say the work we do is important. Well, without any further ado, Dr. Stephanie, how are you doing?
1: I'm um, well. How are you?
0: Awesome, awesome. Man, I saw you a little bit jump into the trivia, but I think you were holding back. I mean, what, what was going on there? You know, because speakers yeah, took I, win.
1: I was getting them. I was, you know, I had all the answers, of course, and then, um, you know, I just saw other people trying to type. So I said, you know, let me just let them go ahead and get the answer.
0: Yes, yes, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. You know, we want to just share the love. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, Dr. Stephanie, I would love to hear more about you. We typically start an origin story, but we don't have to go that far back with you. Let us know. Let's just get started. Letting the audience know who you are, what you do, and some of the things you're proud about in your work and life.
1: Absolutely. So my name is Dr. Stephanie irby I am um, a clinical psychologist by training, um, but I'm also a mother, proud mother of three adult children. Um, I call them my independent dependents. Um, and I'm a daughter. Um, and I'm a professor, researcher. Um, I basically um, do teaching. I research. I consult. I... Um, I do a lot, as many of us do. Um, I'm a woman of many hats. Um, But I am a a professor at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Um, And I also am a founder and president of Kindred Behavioral Research, which is a a research and consulting firm that focuses on my passion, which is uh, focusing on race, ethnicity, and culture, um, and how that shows up in terms of our psychological health and well-being, how it impacts our development, how it impacts our family, um, our family functioning and dynamics. Um, I'm also interested in marrying evidence-based practices and cultural relevancy to make sure that, you know the interventions in our communities, the programs that are in our communities are speaking to our lived experience, right? Um, So that's my passion. I um, also uh, love to mentor and teach around these topic areas. So that's what I do in a nutshell.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that backdrop. You know, I'm excited about this topic because often when I'm thinking about this topic, it has to be one of the most difficult topics out there. And I remember recently I was speaking to someone and they were talking about, well, race or racism in the workplace. And it hit me that a lot of times when these conversations come up, we always start from scratch. Like, oh, and this is what I'm kind of imagining. Are you sure that that's what it is? Are you sure that that's a thing? How do you know? Are you just making an excuse? And what that tells me, it feels like we start from scratch every time the conversation happens. What I get excited about with this conversation with you is that you have spent some time researching racial, ethnic and cultural influences on youth development and family functioning. Like what inspired you to kind of get started in this type of work?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, You know, I've always been I've always been interested in race and, and I don't know if it's because I grew up in a predominantly white environment where I remember being called racial um, slurs or, or being called um, certain names that didn't make me feel so good about myself. Or perhaps it was being at an undergraduate institution that at that time was incredibly racist. And I encountered a lot of racism. And so um, I think there were just various experiences in my life that made me wonder, like, how we can understand it more, but then also how can we counteract it? How can we buffer? How can we still thrive when we got targets on our backs, right? And when there are these misperceptions. And um, so I think it's probably a combination of lived experiences, but then also reading research and reading of others that were doing work that I was just so interested in, who happened to be Black scholars that were just making a difference for me. So I think it's a combination of all that, Calvin. I mean, um, I don't think it's one particular thing.
2: Well,
0: you know, as they say, so much inspiration from just life itself. Let's, Let's kind of jump into this whole racial socialization process. Tell us this, you know, from some of your research and experiences, how do you What is the process? What do you think the process of racial socialization, how can that impact a child's development? And more importantly, what can we as parents do to facilitate that positive racial identity conversation and development with children?
1: Okay, so um, that's a lot, but let me just start by telling um, everyone what is racial ethnic socialization because maybe they don't necessarily know. I mean, it's something we've been doing, I think for generations, but we now have a scholarly name attached to it, right? But racial socialization or racial ethnic socialization is basically the process by which we talk to, transmit messages about, expose our children to meaning around race, who they are as racial beings, okay? So it's about providing information. It's about providing history. It's about um, knowledge around being who you are as a racial being, Um, but that's not enough because what we also need to do is teach our children to navigate and negotiate the terrain of racism. So the idea is you can say how wonderful you are and how you come from kings and queens and, and all of that good stuff, but then what happens when you're in a situation where you are encountering a racial conflict um, and you're you're encountering messages that are counter to what you've been told at home, right? So. We also have to teach children how to navigate and negotiate the terrain, and we have to give them problem solving conflict resolution skills to help them navigate that because what we don't want them to do is be reactive because we know by being reactive, um, that tends not to go so well uh, first and foremost. Um, but also we know that, you know our behavior, particularly as black beings and black children, um, are perceived differently. You know, sometimes in other groups, okay, the idea of being a class clown in school doesn't exist for a young black boy. Um, you will be labeled a behavior problem and, um, and, and suspended or expelled or, you know, so, so we need to also, you know, let children and youth understand that they will encounter these situations. And here are some tools, a repertoire of tools that they can use so when they get in those situations they have some options, right? They're not just being reactive. Okay, I could do this and then this will probably happen. I could do that and then that'll happen. I think I'm gonna do this. This is what mom or dad or auntie talked talk to me about. You know, I, I, I knew this was coming. I'm gonna do this. I'm just gonna take the high road, you know? So there are just different options, right? And we wanna make sure that you understand those options.
0: Awesome, awesome. I, I love the idea of tools. And how you describe it, you know, not just being reactive, because in all, honestly, I've seen adults just be paralyzed by these things and they're paralyzed and they don't know what to do. Right. You said you don't want to be reactive. But then there's also I've seen that paralysis. Right. So, you know, you have, you know, some I guess what they call culturally relevant evidence based approach to parenting. Big word. Right. What are some of the tools that you kind of recommend that parents can use to essentially facilitate this conversation with children?
1: Yeah. um, Well, first and foremost, I think parents, we need to acknowledge the fact that these are difficult conversations. They're difficult conversations, not just because, you know, it's not because we don't want to talk about it. From my experience working with families, particularly Black families, they know the importance of it, but some of us just don't even know how to go about starting the conversation. But most importantly, and I think what hits us most is the fact that we're dealing with our own issues, right? I mean, we're dealing with our own traumas and microaggressions and experiences in the workplace and down the, you know, at the store and in the grocery, in the department, um, shopping and, and all sorts of things. So we have to transmit these messages at a time when we're trying to manage our own feelings and emotions around it, right? And that's not an easy task, right? So, um, so I think that that's what's most difficult. How do I talk to my child about something, uplift them, empower them, but I'm feeling real raw and I'm having some feelings about something that just happened at work today, right? And how do I do that? And so that is a really, you know, that, that's a balancing act. That's very difficult. Managing your own racial stress while you're trying to manage your child's experiences, right? Um, so my experience of the parents wanna do it. they do it. um some do it and I would say more intentional than others. uh we tend to do it times when we have to because they have had an encounter or a situation has come about. There's been some media uh media, uh footage that you know is is you know replaying over and over um so there's been something that has been a catalyst for us you know, having to have these conversations. And then some of us are more proactive, okay? I want to make sure that if my child is in this situation, I talk to them about it now because I don't want them to, you know, I don't want this to break their spirit. I don't want it to, you know, um, you know, hurt their soul. And so, you know, we call that either being proactive or reactive, but um, I think we all do it. I would contend all families engage in racial ethnic socialization by not talking about it i would contend that you're talking about it because you're giving the message that it's not something to talk about if you know what i mean so it's it's like you know it's it, it can give the message of it being taboo um but i think that's the most difficult thing managing um your own feelings and trying to also uplift your child at the same time but then also How do I give messages to my child that are realistic and tell sort of the real deal, but don't make them feel like they can't do whatever, you know, like they can't, like the world is not theirs, like they can't obtain whatever they want to obtain. You don't want them to feel like there's a ceiling and you're only going to go, but this far, you're only going to live, but this age, I mean, some really sort of, um, you know, horrific types of ideas that we don't want our children to have, right? So how do you balance the realities? Because the realities are real. I mean, racism is in the air, right? I mean, we're living it, we're breathing it. it, it's in, you know, it's in the structures, it's not just interpersonal, it's in everything that we see when we walk out the door. And it affects us even, you know, I mean, it's, So it's it's difficult. And I get it. I get
0: it. Well, thanks for that, because, you you know, you remind me of a conversation I had with my son. And I remember thinking about how angry I felt when I felt one, I have to have this conversation. Two, I have to have it so early. Mm -hmm. Three. I need to prepare him. And I started telling myself, I said, I think dads prepare and moms protect. Now, that's what my mom mind kept telling me. And I said, well, I don't know if mom's going to do it, but I need to prepare him. Right. And I kept thinking about that, but I was so angry and it was just really, really just clouding my mind. But what you say about managing your own emotion is so, so real, because what I began to realize if I didn't manage my own emotions, it would come out and seem like it's directed at him. And it was just what you said is so true, because I remember going through that. One of the favorite Mm -hmm. terms I saw when I was researching this topic and just looking at your background is the term resilience. Mm. Omg, I love that word. Because as um, we had a previous speaker, Dr. Chris Marsh, and she says, you know, at one point I grew up in this white environment and, you know, I was living my life and eventually I have what she calls a racialized moment. She says, it's not if, it's when you will eventually have a racialized moment. And when you do, what you're going to do? I love how she described it. She says, since then, I claim my Blackness, I'm doing good and I'm not giving it back. Right. But I love this term resilience. And but tell me this. What do you feel, you know, as you begin to look at resilience, what role it plays in promoting like positive mental health, well-being in children and families of color? How important is resilience to our children?
1: Resilience is incredibly important. Um. And I think that racial socialization is actually a mechanism by which we can help our children to be even more resilient. Um, I strongly believe that even in adversity, even if you are doing behaviors that are maladaptive, I still feel there is resilience. There is strength in every person. Um, And for me, That's why I like working with families that tend to have a lot going on and youth that tend to have a lot going on, because I really get excited about trying to unpack the layers and try to figure out where is sort of that, you know, that gold buzzer, where can I intervene and validate in order to promote change? And, you know, and, and honestly, I've, I've, I've seen a lot in terms of the, um, you know, the kids and the families I've worked with. And I just, I firmly believe that they're still resilient, even in maladaptive, unlawful behavior. And I think that that's really key. It is, I think, really important to help children to understand um, their strengths and their, um, you know, the things that they, they bring and show up with. And how even if other people don't view them as positives, that they are positive and they can be positive, and how to use their uh, their abilities to um, to promote positivity and and resilience and 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 promote you know positive outcomes. Um, so you know resilience is very important, and I think racial socialization is one way in which. We can help our children to be more resilient and to really find the strength within themselves.
0: Awesome. Awesome. You know, one of the um, some of the work you do, I think you call it Working Group on Race Related Parental Stress Resilience. Tell us about this program and some of the things you learned from, you know, this working group.
1: Yeah, well, that was um, a working group through the American Psychological Association that really tapped into exactly what we just talked about in terms of parents having to deal with issues around race and culture, but also managing their own stress and acknowledging the fact that parents of color particularly are dealing with their own, you know, experiences and emotions around these things. And so to think that even though we're adults, that somehow we have figured it out and we're good is, um, is, is you know, not realistic. Um, so it's really important to help parents to manage that stress. And so we basically just try to think about um, different sort of strategies for parents to Um, to engage in, in order to not only manage their stress, but also to help them to talk to their kids about, you know, race and and ethnicity. And and it could be anything um, from sort of doing, you know, exercises and breathing and journaling and praying, listening to music, things that kind of to get you somewhat centered or in a position to have that discussion or discussions with your child, um, or to just do it periodically as part of our own self-care. You know, really understanding that there are times when we need counseling as adults, we need therapy as adults, we need to pray and go get therapy. Um, We can, um, you know, whether it's spiritually, whether it's physically in terms of exercise, Self-care is really important because that's going to help us to manage our stress so that we can then help manage our children and their stress. And then those are tools that we can help our children to to engage in as well, right? And and help them to manage when they become upset upset and, and, and become more aware of how they're feeling in the moment.
0: You know, thanks for that, because, you know, as you were talking, I was really kind of thinking about this trend. And initially I'm thinking about the children and the children and their processing and their interpretation. But as you talk, it began to hit me that more and more, it's really the parents unpacking the topic, the parents dealing with the topic. For example, I was talking to a grandfather and I, um, times it got weird and we were just talking about the social climate. And I asked him, I said, well, in your generation, you know, these things existed and they looked like they went away and then all of a sudden they surged again. I said, what were your thoughts, you know, as you raised your children? And he told me, he said, you know, we saw it, right, during the civil rights movement. And then, of course, we began to see it surge again. And a lot of times we didn't talk to our children about it. And I said, I'm curious, why? And he says, well, I had hoped, we had hoped that we would never have to talk to him about it. We had hoped that these things were behind us. And it really, really gave me a certain type of understanding or peace or like the innocence of hope that we just hoped that we didn't have to talk about it. And as life begins to evolve, we discover, well, I guess this just one of those topics that is not going to go away we're going to have to talk about it tell us more about you because i know i've had some of my canned questions but i would love to hear more about the work you're doing how we can support you how we can follow you i know you recently received a huge promotion you're busy you got kids graduating tell us about some of the work you're passionate about how we can follow you how we can support your work
1: okay um so like i said i'm a clinical psychologist by training and so everything that i do I have to somehow translate into something people can use, right? Some sort of program, some sort of intervention, something that's hands-on, something that's interactive for folks to be able to engage in, um, to help them to process and to, um, you know, to move forward with respect to this racial stuff. One of the things um, I've done is I've developed a program called Black Parenting Strengths and Strategies, and it is a program that is developed um, by myself um, uh, as well as um, a children's curriculum. Um, but basically, what it is 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 a program that intentionally integrates racial socialization into what we would consider, I guess, universal parenting practices you know, we know that there are sort of these evidence-based universal practices that are supposed to work when it comes to, you know, managing children's behavior and preventing behavior problems. And all of that is great. And I think it's great research and it's something I've studied and I, you know, and I and have great respect for. But, I don't think that um, there is any way in which you can truly implement those strategies as a family or a person of color without the context of race and culture being the lens by which you do that. And so I think it just needs to be, um, it needs to be taught, it needs to be uh, practiced, and it needs to be discussed in ways that are culturally relevant, right? And I feel like if you do that, then you're actually marrying evidence based practices with cultural relevancy. And then parents can really own the skills that they're learning. It's something that speaks to their lived experiences. Okay. So, you know, the way I learned time out, if I try to teach the families I work with how I learned time out, um, they would probably look at me like, um, you know, got three heads or something because it assumes the standard traditional way assumes a lot of things. You know, many of these interventions and programs have been based on middle-class white families. Um, and we um, need to understand how families, um, you know, they, they live in different spaces and places and, and have all sorts of experiences that have to be taken into account. So basically, that's what my program does. It, it teaches about um, child development. It teaches about parenting in a way that acknowledges and respects the fact that race is important and um, race can be a very positive thing, but it can also be something that um, can um, promote a lot of stress against children. And we want to make sure that children are prepared. So yeah, that's what Black Parenting Strengths and Strategies does.
0: Awesome. Awesome. You know, I want to take one question from the audience before um, we let you go. And what I would love, if you don't mind dropping that in the chat. So it seems like, is it a program that we can participate in, we can sign up for, or how would we get access to this program?
1: Well, what I can do is I can, um, I'll, I can You want me to type it in the chat. Yeah, I can yeah, type in the chat the websites that ones can, you know, you can go to to learn more about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can also provide my email address. I think I think someone already um, gave my uh, Kindred Behavior.
0: Yes, yes. I think we can put that in the chat. So and that's good for okay. the recording, too. So it's Kindred okay. Behavior. OK. Yeah. Let's so there it is. There oh, she yeah, found it. there
1: it is. Yeah, it's right awesome. here.
0: Um, So it's
1: kindredbehavior.com. Also, um, you can um, get to my website at University of North Carolina, Greensboro. So it's um, basically hhs.uncg.edu. And you can search my name, Dr. Stephanie Irby Cord. Um, And... You know, you can also uh, through that, you can get access to my um, my uh, lab where I do research and my, my work there at UNCG. Um, so between those two um, uh, sites, you can, you know, learn more about BPSS and then also one talk at a time, which we haven't had a chance to talk about, but that's another, um, another program that's helping parents to navigate these racial socialization talks. But this is with some collaborators where we're focusing on Black, Asian, and Latin families.
0: Nice. Awesome. Awesome. That sounds exciting. And I tell you why I always say representation matters. And that's such a broad, broad turn, but I love to see the research being conducted in these topics. Because if we don't do it, then who will? And if someone else does it, You just don't know what you're going to get. So I'm definitely proud that you're doing this work and this research. Let's see if we can pause for a question. Who has a question from the audience? Feel free to type it in the audience or, you know, if we recognize you, I may unmute you, but I don't unmute just anybody. But uh, anyway, did I say that loud? (laughs) Yes, I did. So, So what questions do we have for Dr. Stephanie? We'll Come see
1: on, what pops up. I
0: know up you guys had. got questions. Yeah, you got know sometimes, sometimes um, the audience acts a little shy <laughs> um, on the <laughs> first gotta time. Gotta have at least one
1: question.
0: Yes, yes, yes. We, we'll see what comes in. I, I've definitely mastered the art of patience and awkward silence. Ah, yes, Ren asked aid. that key question.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, Ren. Thank you. We forgot about the key question. You know, yeah. You have had a controversial topic of talking to. Children very early about racism. Tell us about that. And as Ren would say, what is a good age to get started talking with a kid about race, cultural identity, self identity, and things like that?
1: Yeah. Um, Actually, I talked about this and got kind of, I don't know, I guess I got kind of dinged. I don't know. People started, you know, on the internet saying, oh my gosh, she's saying that young children are talking about race and they need to be innocent, blah, 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 blah. Okay. We need to be talking to children early, early, early. And I have actually engaged in research where we know that African-American parents are talking to toddlers around race, okay? Okay. So the key is though, how do we do it in a way that's developmentally appropriate? And what's even more difficult, Calvin, is that the experiences, the traumas, the interactions that black kids are experiencing are not developmentally appropriate, right? I mean, we've got 10 year olds being treated like they're 18, right? And so how do you, again, give them the real real without breaking their spirit, and then it's just a kid and you want them to just be a kid, right? So the thing about racial socialization is it's not just a talk, it's a process and it doesn't just start with having these profound, you know, sophisticated discussions with a toddler. They're building blocks, you know, I mean, it's important from early on. And I would say parents can start these conversations in utero and, and I'm not kidding. Um, You know, we know that mortality, um, infant mortality, we know the disparities. We know that African-American women are experiencing mortality as well as infant mortality at earlier, you know, disparities more and more than other groups. And so I think by it is natural for black mothers to be very sort of protective and also anxious about having their child. And so. You know, I think it's important to provide those positive messages, those soothing messages, um, providing anything that you feel helps to relieve your stress around this, to help you take care of yourself, that transmits to that child, to that baby. Okay. But I think early on, early on, we can talk about our children and give them positive messages about their skin tone, about their hair, and using kind of natural. Um, natural interactions to promote those messages. So when we're combing our, you know, toddler's hair, making it something that's positive and exciting and, you know, ways in which, you know, they're feeling good about the experiences that they're having, right? And so these positive messages are important to give early on because as they get older, these are gonna lay the foundation for those more sophisticated, difficult discussions. Because they will come to a point where they will then be told, oh, you're ugly, you're dirty, you smell, you're this, you're that, whatever. And you want them to already have that foundation, right? You want them to be able to say, um, no, I'm this skin color because God made me this way, because my parents are look like this, and because this is a beautiful color. Whatever. I mean, melanin is a great thing, whatever they want to say. But the point is, is that it's developmental. So it starts with the prideful messages. Then it goes into the preparation for what we call bias measure um, uh, messages um, that are more difficult and sophisticated. And so um, but all of that is racial, ethnic socialization. And so I would say it needs to happen as soon as possible. And I would contend in utero.
0: Awesome. Awesome. I said it. (laughs) Dr. Stephanie Erbicore, thank you for being here tonight. I know you got a hard stop, so we're going to let you go. I want to say thank you for sharing with us your perspectives and your research and how we as parents can be more aware of our own internal triggers as we begin to digest this topic that we've recently learned that, no, we cannot hope that it will go away. It's not going away And we got to talk about it. And I love how you wrap this up. These positive identity messages that can start as early as I love your hair. I love your braids. I love your skin. I love the way your cocoa butter smells. I love it. I love Mm -hmm. it. I love it. Thank you, Dr. Mm -hmm. Irby Court. Thank you. Thank you. Any any last words before um, you you drop off? I just want to make sure. That no, you I just, to say what I just you want, want to
1: say, I, and I thank you so much, Calvin, for giving me this forum and space to, you know, talk about something I feel so passionate about. But, you know, I just we don't have the luxury of not addressing these issues. We do not. Um, it is not a luxury to talk about these things. It is a necessity. And so, you know, we all struggle. And that's okay. These are not, it's not one conversation. Um, It's multiple conversations. um, And it's also conversations that sometimes will require us as parents to have some transparency about our own experiences so that children can see, you know, I've dealt with it too, and this is how I dealt with it. You know, so I just want us to use this as an opportunity to build relationships with our children. I think it's something that definitely can, can, uh, uh, make for more quality parent-child interactions. And, you know, race doesn't have to have this negative connotation. It can be a very loving conversation and a very empowering and very embracing conversation. And I think we just need to be intentional about doing it.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much. Oh, Thank you AM. so much. Gee, I mean, I'm just excited. And, you know, it's so funny is because... You know, I do the work, I do the research, but still yet there's always these surprises. So I love how Dr. Stephanie just kind of broke it down. And Tavaria, I saw you in the back kind of giving you a amen, your high five, and i seen you typing in the chat. Tell us about your story. You say you started talking with your son um, at five years old. Tell us about that.
2: Yes, um, Dr. Stephanie, you really spoke to my heart. Thank you so much. I just had to shout out. I did go to UNCG for like a semester and then I had a double back. But-
1: okay
2: <laughs> 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 But yes, like, oh my gosh, like what Dr. Stephanie was saying is just spoke so much to my heart because i I have a three year old daughter, and I have a five year old son um my daughter is brown skin beauty like myself um but unfortunately <laughs> for me it took me a very long time to accept that of myself and i don't want my daughter to have to go through some of the some of the challenges that i had to go through that i went through in just getting to accepting myself and loving my skin and my son. Um, we had to have a conversation with him about the difference between when his my black Santa Claus and white Santa Claus. So I was just like, "We're doing this right now, Mom. okay?" <laughs> so it was it was a lot. The conversation was very very deep. <laughs> so that, Dr. Stephanie, I might have to, you know, hop on a program with you just to kind of calm down my anxiety about that, because it was a lot. I, I was, I was shocked to even have to talk so early um, about that, even though I know that it's necessary, you know, these things, but you will hope, like you were saying, Calvin, that hope, the hope is there to, in, in to really just, believe that hopefully there it wouldn't have to come to that. But unfortunately we live in a in a world where we do and that's our reality, unfortunately. And so we have to honestly navigate through that.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about my own experience with my son. And I was thinking about the techniques of these positive um reinforcement and affirmations. And I got lucky this year. Check this out. So um, um February comes up and it's Black History Month, so I buy a bunch of on grade level, let's say second grade books that are covering Obama, Rosa Parks, and all of these things, and he likes to read, right? So he starts reading and all of a sudden, you know, I was like, okay, cool, he's just going to read a bunch of Brown books for February, and I was just curious what was going to happen, and I didn't really think so much, and let's say he read 10, 15, I don't know, was a bunch of them. But then something came up at school and he was talking and he was a little frustrated, And he was like, well, isn't that what MLK came for? You know, why? You know, are we still dealing with this? And I'm like, uh. And he begins to process it and ask the question. I still wasn't ready to address the question, but I realized as simple as recognizing books and positive affirmation was enough to get his mind wrapped around something and to begin to start the conversation. So as we transition topic, um, Miss Franklin, thank you. Thank you for being here tonight. And I'm so, so excited about this topic of anxiety because I love what you said about your child. It wasn't until the last semester of my engineering studies at Vanderbilt that I had taken this class three times. Mm. And I'm looking at the professor and I'm like, dude, I already got a job. I'm getting ready to make some money. I'm getting ready to go to IBM. And he's looking at me like, so I don't care. You need to pass this class. And I took it three times. But eventually he gave me a little grief, I mean, a little relief. And he was like, well, go um, to the doctor and talk to you about and talk about this stuff. Doctor said, I wish you'd have came freshman year. I could have gave you a recommendation or a prescription so that you would have got extra time on your exam. Now, these engineering exams were horrible. It's like boot camp, right? It's more work than you can physically accomplish. I was young. I didn't know that. So I'm sitting here studying 24, 48 hours, two weeks, get to the exam and forget everything. Yeah. What I begin to realize is that anxiety is real. Yes. And similar to you, I didn't want my son to have to wait into the last semester of engineering school before he began to understand what anxiety is. But enough about me. Ms. Devira Franklin, tell us a little bit about you and how you got working in your organization, Healing Grounds Therapy Wellness and Center. Tell us about you.
2: Well, thank you, Calvin, um, for just having me and this, having this platform for us to be able to speak freely about things that honestly are just difficult to talk about on a day-to-day basis. So I thank you for having me this evening. Again, everyone, thank you for joining in. My name is Tabara Franklin. I'm a licensed professional counselor and the CEO and founder of Healing Grounds Therapy and Wellness Center that is located in Jonesboro, Georgia, where we are cultivating hope and healing back into the lives of families and individuals through honesty, openness, and transparency, which I like to refer to as being hot. Um, I have a team of clinicians that I work with uh, where we are providing individuals, families, as well as couples therapy. My specialty is around anxiety as well as depression. I work with adolescents from the age of 13 and up and women as well as mothers who are new or transitioning. So that is my niche. Um, Not only am I a mother again of two babies, a three-year-old and a five-year-old, my baby just graduated pre-K, y'all. So I'm so excited, <laughs> but also like, oh my, God, oh my gosh! So it's so much excitement around that, but um, a little anxiety. But you know that's okay. Um, but overall excitement. I love what I do. Um, Healing grounds is my baby, honestly. Um, to answer your question, the first, the other question is, how did I get started? I honestly, Calvin, I have to say that it was something that I felt like people needed, even when I thought about it when I was in high school. You know, I always wanted to be in a field where I was helping people. I mean, at first it was like a nurse and then it went to a psychiatrist and then I, you know, went ahead and, and did just, you know, did therapy, you know, being a professional therapist, but I always, it was always in a helping realm. And because I have challenges with anxiety, um, and had challenges, severe challenges with anxiety, but, um, it was under wraps. Not a lot of people noticed. And I noticed that the high school that I was in you know, a lot of people focused in on the ones that were, let's say, uh, caused a lot of trouble, <laughs> we'll say, um, you know, the ones who were really academic driven or even maybe not so um, just had severe anxiety, maybe pressure. I felt like people, people of that nature, as well as more people needed a safe space to go to. And so that is why I created Healing Grounds Therapy and Wellness Center.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. I love, I love, I love here at Soul Thursday. We love a good origin story. Tell us about this. I've been seeing this term out for a while, this CBT, Cognitive Behavior Therapy, um, Reality Therapy. Can you tell us about the core principles and what is that all about? And how do you, you know, address that at Healing Grounds?
2: Yes. So CBT is Cognitive Behavior Therapy. Um, where we're focusing on the thoughts. Um, We believe as clinicians that your thoughts are driven by what you feel, which then drives what you then do. And so our ultimate goal as clinicians who, who service under that modality is to be able to change your thoughts, be able to reframe your thoughts, be able to understand what are some irrational beliefs meaning, what are some... Things that don't make sense. Okay, what are those thoughts that has have absolutely have no evidence for that just do not make sense? And try to identify more rational thoughts to then help you change your mood, and then would thus help you change the actions that follow behind those things. Reality has a has a different twist to it, whereas um, it does focus on your thoughts. It does focus on, has a CBT background, but it's more so focused on the present, not necessarily the past. Uh, We're not discussing any symptoms. We're focused on your goals and what you're doing, what you're behaviorally doing, what your actions are speaking of. Does your action line up with what you're wanting in life? So uh, oftentimes in therapy, you know, my, cl- my clients would hear me say, well, how is that working out for you? <laughs> because that is more like a, reality, a reality-based um, approach that we take when we're trying to understand um, how are your actions lining up with your goals? And if they're not, then there's an accountability part that comes with it, which is why I really consider myself a healing accountability partner, not just the therapist, Because I really do believe your your choices and your actions are are really fundamental as far as whether or not you're going to see your goals come to fruition.
0: Oh, I love it. I love it. I I love the ability that you can just simply ask that. Right. Because not everybody, when you go to therapy, you know, talks and I got a long story. I'm not going to tell that story now. But I love the fact, I'm just going to say you create a safe environment, right? But tell us, like, how do you create that safe environment? Because I imagine, you know, people have some crazy thoughts, some crazy things that they may not even be comfortable sharing. So how do you create that safe, non-judgmental space with your clients so they can be that authentic self? And you can ask them, how is that working for you?
2: Well, first and foremost, you know, I'll give you a, a taste. Okay, so when let's just say you are coming in for your first session, right? I don't know you and you don't know me. So I'm gonna I'm gonna share out a little bit of transparency, but also I'm gonna be authentic. Okay. Most of the time when people come into therapy, there's always are already some kind of prejudgment about therapy. They've already had some kind of therapeutic experience, they were probably absolutely horrible. And they're like, this therapist is probably the same. (laughs) Or they're like already having some prejudgments about therapy based upon what they've seen on television or some sort. So I'm coming in just like this and I'm giving a spill. And that spill honestly is more so getting you to understand who I am as a therapist. I come in and tell people that um, in order for you to derive and be on a continuum of healing because I don't believe healing is a one-stop shop or you know dead end this is it no you're on a continuum until you take your last breath and so I educate them first and foremost and then I let them know like what are they what to hope for in therapy with me but more importantly I let them know who I am in therapy and how I approach therapy. I be transparent as far as my own um, story because I let them know and say, hey, yes, I am a therapist, but I'm a healing accountability partner. I emphasize on the partnership because then I tell them, you know, just because you're on one side of the screen doesn't mean that I can't learn from you and vice versa. And so with that, that makes them feel like, well, you know what? You know, I can dig this person right here because it doesn't feel like a dictatorship. It doesn't feel like this person knows more than me because I don't. We're all human by nature. Fundamentally, we're all going through something, you know? And so that that individual, that person needs to be able to understand that we're on this journey side by side. And that is how I create a non-judgmental space.
0: Awesome. Awesome. You know, I remember when I first saw um, you speaking and I remember I was like, hmm, she gets it. And I'm glad you you, you had never said, I never seen you or heard you say that, hey, that you had experienced anxiety also. But I remember thinking the way she talks about it, I can tell she gets it. Right. And in therapy, you know, I think it was somebody who said, you know, it's very important for a therapist or a counselor to be able to see you. Yes. Or Relate to you. Because if not, they're going to be doing like Dr. Korb was saying, they're going to be recommending, you know, white folks um, methods or white folks, you know, timeout. And they don't really realize these cultural nuances. So mm-hmm. it's really important to be seen. And I can tell when I was watching, I was like, you know what? She gets it. Right. Absolutely. But let's let's go ahead and get to the basics. Let's talk about fear and let's talk about anxiety. And stress, do you mind like just kind of just describing to us, you know, for the people who are listening, let's say we have audience out there that says, hey, I know I got stress, I got anxiety. I know I have anxious moments, as I call it, or I don't even know what this is about. You know, I hear people talking about a panic attack, but I don't even know what that is. For the various people in the audience out there today, tell us your thoughts or perspective of what is anxiety? What is anxiety, you know, you know, driven stress? Tell us just the basics.
2: Well, first and foremost, I'm I'm going to put this out here. Anxiety is a normal emotion. It is a natural emotion. Everybody experiences anxiety. Um there is this um this kind of like taboo or stereotype about anxiety, you know, and very negative connotation towards it. Um as if like it's only for certain people, no everybody experiences anxiety so how i educate everyone on you know what anxiety is you know i start off by educating them on the physiological symptoms of experiencing anxiety so some people you know everybody experiences it differently but physically some of the symptoms that you're going to experience when you're having anxiety is those racing thoughts Sometimes you're going to be ruminating or just, in other words, just focus on this same thought over and over and over um, to a point where it creates so much distress, where it then bleeds out into our body, meaning you you might start to get I call it the bubble guts for some people you know so you hear bubble but the butterflies but some people get the bubble guts let's just be honest um, some people then become so anxious where you're fidgeting a lot you're pacing so much you are um, you are not able to focus you can't bring your your thoughts together um, coherently um some people are sweating a lot your heart is feels like it's about to pour out of your chest you are having this shallow breathing that's very deep it feels like you can't keep keep up with your breath um people experience it in their in their shoulders very tits muscles all types of things so it's it is um it is an emotion that i would say that has has a a mask that can be worn by many people but is really noticeable or at least can be pointed out because it is an emotion that really i would say that projects out pretty much the same way in many people but it might just might just come out differently for some
0: awesome thank you for um Describing that and and I like the way you describe it It can just, you know, display itself differently in many people. What are your thoughts or experiences on how mindfulness or, or meditation can help to, you know, alleviate or manage, you know, stress and anxiety reduction?
2: Well, I will say that mindfulness really does work, but only works if you allow yourself to make it work. So I hear all the time that, you know, that people will say, well, I tried that meditation, mindfulness, and it doesn't work. But what I do in my therapy sessions is I slow it down so that way they can actually sense what it feels like to be present. That is what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is to be in this present moment. So just like you and I are here talking, Calvin, I might have some thoughts that might want to come in and interfere with what what we're talking about, but I notate that, but I bring and redirect my attention back to this present moment. Other times when you're experiencing anxiety, anxiety don't want to hear that. Anxiety can feel like a, (laughs) I call, I call anxiety many different things. My anxiety, I name her, her name is Annie, Mm. Um, but, uh, but anxiety doesn't want to hear that. Anxiety wants to, you know, come in and just be a, a throw tantrums and be loud.
0: Anxiety so that, is a diva and she wants all the attention. He, what you call it, straight diva.
2: Listen, so it doesn't want to be in the present. It wants to think about it like this. Um, you hear that most people experience anxiety when they're doing what? When they're focusing on the future. If there's something that's happening, or it's about to happen, it's going to happen, or I'm not sure if I'm going to have enough of this for later. It's always future tense. But think about for depression. I even though we're not talking about depression, but you know I have to talk about it. Depression is always focused in on you know something that's going on in the past. Now it does have somewhat of a present tense, but most of the time that's anxiety related. Cause again, where there's some type of intense worry, we're to a point where we are not able to really focus in and be present with ourselves with whatever that's happening in that moment. So with mindfulness, it, it helps us to be able to ground ourselves to identify like, what is most important at this moment? One of the, one of the techniques or at least a grounding question that I utilize in my session is, "Am my worst fear before me, or am I? Is my 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 big worry or biggest worry before me? Because it helps us to be able to identify what is most important right now or what is before us right now. And when we're thinking about that, it helps ground us to identify the things that are precious to us, the things that are in our right now space. Right now, we're we're sitting here, we're together, we're talking. I'm in my lovely woman office cage type scenery. I, you know, my biggest worry if I'm worried about a client that's you know at my 10 o'clock is not right here. Right now, it is this being in this space with Calvin and all of these lovely people that's in the audience, so that so being able to get our clients to understand what is in our present helps to alleviate the anxiety
0: you know, I, I love that you mentioned that because, as you were talking, I was thinking about that very thing of if you're anxious, then you're living in the future. Yes, if you're depressed, then you're living in the past. But if you're at peace, then you may find yourself in the present. And I remember I used to struggle. I was watching some celebrity TV hosts and they were like, yeah, mindfulness, mindfulness. And and I was like, I don't know what that is. That just sounds too fancy. I just couldn't connect, right? When I began to see this illustration of anxiety is worried about the future and depression is worried about the past, but peace is that present moment, that mindfulness you are here right now. And it, it took me a while to get it, but when I got it, I can begin to see those ruminating thoughts, as you say, that repetitive stuff. Oh, 10 o'clock appointment, 10 o'clock appointment, 10 o'clock appointment. Oh, what am I going to do? 10 o'clock appointment, 10 o'clock appointment, 10 o'clock yeah. appointment. And, and you're worried about the future or I messed up yesterday's appointment. I messed up yesterday's appointment. I messed up yesterday's appointment. And it just keeps ruminating over and over again. And then you can pause it and be like, you know what? That's done. That thing going in the future it's going to be what it's going to be. Yeah. I'm just going to enjoy this moment right now. The air feels good. The conversation feels good. The drink feels good. Life is good right now in the moment. Let's talk about um, dietary, you know, food. Can food affect your anxiety, your mood, your stress? Tell us about your perspective of food.
2: So I told y'all that I, you know, do have challenges with anxiety. That's not, I'm not medicated for it, not knocking those who are medicated, but I believe in medication um, and when it's necessary. Um, But I do oftentimes for myself take more of a holistic standpoint. So I often look at my diet or I often educate clients on what are some foods that might you know, pop out your Eddie. (laughs) So if you will, one of the most, one of the things that we know for sure, even with research is caffeine. Like you, Calvin, I love Starbucks. You know, I was going to Starbucks every day. But what I noticed (laughs) is when I did have my Starbucks, my Annie was like, I mean, she was showing out. And so even when I've noticed with my clients, I would ask, well, first and foremost, you know, how was your rest the night before? Because we have to look at it from a holistic standpoint of you, know, not just, you know, from, you know, what's happening behaviorally, but let's look at, look at your sleep and also let's look at your diet. So if you had, if you, for those who might have a high stress environment, if you are first thing in the morning you're always rushing and the first thing you go to is just one cup of coffee but you might have put like 10 pack of sugars in there right and you're wondering why you're why you're feeling like you are also running on fumes but two you are you're you're experiencing this high level of 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 energy, but also can be anxiety driven. Your, your heart is beating. You feel like you are, you're shaking so much. You're trembling. You, you feel like you, your thoughts are going a million miles, miles an hour. You know, that is, that is anxiety waking up. And so I I often say that, yes, our, our, what we eat, you know, does have to do with how we awaken our anxiety because, Whatever we put in, whatever we're putting in our mouths, will you know interrupt some of those things. So it is so important that we're kind of tracking, you know, what it is that we're eating, so that way you're paying attention to some of those physiological symptoms. I know for me, I if I'm having some kind of caffeine, you know, especially coffee, then I know my anxiety is probably going to be running wild. Which is why I might switch to something a little bit more natural, like mushroom coffee (laughs) so but or may not necessarily have much so much sugar or sometimes even cheese some kind of dairy might interrupt that so it's really really paying attention to your food and identifying what are some of the symptoms that I normally I probably would have after I've eaten these things so so a food diary is something that I will always recommend to my clients
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. Because I remember when I was not so aware of the food that I would eat, you know, I would just eat and be like, oh, well, I eat. But then when you begin to add some mindfulness or a food diary to what you eat, you begin to see the correlation. And it's gotten so aware now that, you know, if I'm, for example, having my one cup a day or whatever I do with coffee, Even that can be too much if I have that one cup every single day and I hadn't had a workout, right? Because I didn't burn that caffeine out of my system. Then what I have to do is go to half-calf or decaf because I feel like, hey, Calvin, you didn't get a chance to work out. The coffee from the two days ago is still in your body. It's building. You're going to have to get that caffeine out of your system. So either one, you're going to work out one right now. Or two, you're going to go to half-calf because right now that caffeine is still lingering in your body. So that's some of the mindfulness. I begin to have an awareness of my my, um, caffeine intake and that correlation with the diva that I call anxiety. Two more questions and we're going to open it up for the audience. So I, I love this concept of social support and building a strong support network to help manage and support your stress and anxiety. Any thoughts? So that's one question. Last question is, I would love to hear any final words of encouragement you have for the audience, you know, who may be struggling with this on their healing journey. So two questions. And of course, you got to tell us about your um, how people can support you if you're taking patients in Georgia or other states. But I would love to talk about the social support and some words of encouragement for the audience. And then lastly, how people can support you and the work you do. Tell us about social support.
2: So it is extremely important that you have people around you who get anxiety or at least get some understand mental health. They identify that mental health is an important aspect. If you have people around who do not believe in anxiety or do not believe in depression, then it's going to be difficult for you to be able to find that niche that you're looking for. Um, This is why um, being able to vessel out your, your troopers, your support systems, um, in order to get the help that you're needing. Now, I'm not saying that you're needing people who's going to baby you or enable certain situations. No, but you also need to be able to have those people who get you, who be able to give you grace. Um, and that is why um support is 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 needed. so if if you don't have it with your family over your the friend, then being able to identify where can I get it in my community? It might be where I have to be able to go to therapy. I have clients who just say, you know, I I don't have friends or family members who I can be able to go to and th- and talk about these things. This is why I'm here, and this is why Healing Grounds Therapy and Wellness Center is created so as a resource to the community to be able to make sure that clients have a space to be able to be their authentic self, but also be able to get the help that they need to get through their healing process. Uh, I was trying to understand the last question. I forgot.
0: No, no worries. I'll, I'll definitely re. re- uh, it, I, it was my fault for doing too much, as Katie would say. But, but you definitely answered the question of social support and why it's important. Because, you know, one of the greatest blessings I had for my anxiety and a person says to me, Calvin, I can see your anxiety. I'm like, you can? Mm-hmm. They said, yeah. They said, I realize when I do this thing, thing. It triggers your anxiety. I'm like, yeah. you've noticed that? They say, yeah. yeah. And they say, I'm going to be mindful just because I care yeah. that I don't want to trigger your anxiety because yeah. I see it happening and I care enough about you for that. I was like, OMG. Nobody has ever said that before. Most people be like, well, I thought you were more man than that. I thought, you know, yeah. if you were real man. If you were real brother, black man, you know, you get talking like that. I'm like, see, I'm about to find me a whole <laughs> new tribe. Whole new family, right? Because they they ain't ready, right? But no. those people don't get it. And I like the way you describe it because sometimes you got to find your tribe because those people who don't get it, I've learned they're not managing their own mental health. They're not aware of mental health. They're over yes. in a taboo space and they are definitely not at a place where they can be a healthy place for you. So thank you for sharing that. Tell us about Healing Grounds and some of the things and um, what states you cover and how people can follow you for your services.
2: Yes, absolutely. So you can be able to reach us at healinggroundstherapy.com. That's healinggrounds with the s therapy.com. Um we uh, offer services in person for Georgia and virtually for Georgia. Um uh, we have not yet hit the other states just yet although um, we do, um, you know, make exceptions from time to time when it was COVID, and then there's because of COVID, there's still some exceptions, but only from a, a it just depends on the case. Um, so I would say definitely, uh, please reach us at through the website. You can be able to follow myself at healing Grounds underscore therapy or just Tavara Franklin, where I um, post a lot of different helpful tips. Um, you could be able to see on both ends, uh, Facebook as well as Instagram, different events that we're coming up. We have a, we're right currently, we're in a four week series for Mental Health Awareness Month. And tomorrow at noon, we're going live On my page at Tavara Franklin on Instagram, where we're discussing um, emotional intelligence in children and how to increase emotional intelligence in children through your own transparency. So I hope to see some of you guys lovely faces. But we also have some other things that's coming up. So just make sure you follow us to check out those other events.
0: Awesome. And Tamika, if you don't mind grabbing that Instagram and sharing it in the chat, that will be excellent. So y'all can catch. Miss Franklin, tomorrow at noon, she's going live and talking about another one of my favorite topics, emotional intelligence in children. That is beautiful. You know, old folks call that common sense, but since we've learned all common sense ain't common. So I would love, love, love to see it. So we're going to open it up to the audience for some questions and we're going to chat with Miss Franklin for a little bit longer and let her get back to them kids. But, um, Let's um, get some questions for the audience. To me, do we have any questions? Have anybody typed any questions? I've seen some thumbs up, some excitement. Uh, Oh, I see one from DeToya. Do you find that anxiety affects an individual's ability or interest to self-assess? How do you help guide youth through this period? So I think that's, um, I'm going to try that again. Do you find that anxiety affects an individual's ability or interest to self-assess?
2: I think that anxiety can be a blocker to many things. I think because anxiety is so focused on think about it from a flight fight or flight standpoint, anxiety is thinking about things that are, that are scary, that are, um, that that may presume to be some kind of harm or hurt so because of that it will stop you from actually thinking rational or even thinking in the most positive way and being able to make certain decisions or be able to go through certain avenues that are actually are helpful but because anxiety is looking like uh uh-uh you know, this doesn't feel secure. This doesn't feel comfortable. We're gonna stay very stagnant. So that is. I hope that I answered that question for you. Um, yeah. For the first part.
0: Yeah, I like your, your your answer to that. And um, the second part was, um, let's see, was it about children? What well, says? Oh, how do you help guide youth through this period? Oh, so it seems like your answer is yes. It can right be yes. a blocker or a blinder. Yes. But in this case, how do we help kids navigate that?
2: Well, I think the first the first part is being able to educate them on what anxiety is, to normalize it, because right now, I mean, I do work with teenagers, again, females as well as you know, I, I talk with my males too, but um, but help helping them to normalize their feelings. Because at this point, you have a lot of children who believe that certain things that they are experiencing isn't normal. Um, And so because of that, it shies them away or prevents them from showing out their authentic self. So being able to educate them on like what anxiety is and being able to say, hey, You know, this is actually a rational thing to feel anxious about or to be, you know, nervous about or to, you know, whatever. I think being able to to spin it in that way to validate those some of things, some of those things will help them be able to navigate those anxious avenues that they have.
0: Awesome. I love that. I love that. It's okay. It's natural. You know, mom, dad, I get anxious, too. You know, I love that. So you normalize it. You make it seem okay because I hadn't thought about the concept of a child thinking, hey, whatever's going on with me, I don't feel right. Something is weird and they can become embarrassed of it. But I like what you say. It's just. Open it up, normalize it. So let's, let's get back to the audience. Uh, more questions, please. Let's see. Um, let's do about two more questions with uh, Miss Franklin, then we'll let her go. And while we're waiting for questions, I'll give you guys a surprise. So, so uh, K Boogie, the real K Boogie, is here tonight. He tested his sound, and, and I think he um, he okay now. But I want to tell y'all the second he gonna give a shout out. He has a playlist. He has a mix because he's the real DJ of the uh, late anime Bullock. Now, for you young folk who don't know who Anime Bullock is, y'all not going to be able to win this trivia. But if you know who Anime Bullock is, you should hold tight because the real K Boogie is going to create a freestyle mix. And the way it works is when you guess the song by the author, Anime Bullock, then you can win a copy of Getting Started in Podcasting by Soul Thursdays. So coming up after uh, Miss Franklin is going to be K Boogie with his Tina Turner Mix. What are the questions we got from the audience?
2: Um, There's a question from Angela. Uh, Many people out there are without medical benefits. And so that includes mental health as well. Can you advise what resources are out there for those that might not have uh, the coverage? Absolutely. So, um, for those who are working, you have a program that's called EAP, that is Employee, Employee Assistance Program, where your employer will team up with a third-party vendor, a third-party company, uh, where they will authorize a certain amount of sessions uh, with providers that are in network with them. So um, with that, you know you can get anywhere between three to 12 sessions. Uh, through your employer, depending upon who they're teaming up, um, you have providers who have a uh, sliding scale uh, that is of something that's based upon your income, and um, you could be able to utilize that to get on a fairly uh, feasible feasible um, program or feasible uh, or obtain a feasible amount to be able to get the sessions. Um, you also have oh, there. There was another um, program that kind of came to my mind, but those are the two main ones. Um, your insurance, um, if um, uh, you know, again has those EAP benefits. You don't have to necessarily use the insurance if you do have insurance. Go for, short out. Use the insurance first. You can utilize their EAP, but most of the time, you your employer has a EAP program and is a network with different providers who are offering or in network with it. And then you have those clinicians who, you know, should have a sliding scale. So I know our uh, facility have a sliding scale if it's if it's needed. Um, there are um, for most people who are on a sliding scale, you know, for any company, you know, there's a there's they're checking on your income to see which where you may lay as far as where uh how much you would be expected to pay out of pocket for that. So that way you know, you could be able to get the healing and services that you need.
0: Uh, thanks for sharing that, because I love the the concept of the sliding scale. And it's kind of income based. But what it means to me is instead of two hundred dollars an hour, you may have to pay fifty dollars an hour. But I would yeah. say no matter where you go, it's definitely worth it. And I'm pretty sure there's tons of other programs out there. And I, I can't remember the, the uh I don't know if it's researchers or differently. um government agencies that kind of provide, you know, income-based support. You'll have to look that up. I'll share that in the notes tomorrow, programs, you know, based on state that are income-based related.
2: Love Foundation. That is one that I, that I do know, but I believe they are geared towards women. Don't quote me, Mm -hmm. but I would, I would recommend putting it in the chat. The Love Foundation. The
0: Love Foundation. I, I know
2: for sure offers at least three sessions Um, for those who are in need. And it's not an employee assistant program. I believe that is just another um, nonprofit organization where they are helping those who are in need that knows that they're needing mental health services.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, Tavara, thank you for being here tonight and sharing with us your thoughts, your perspective. You know, I'm so excited to be able to have this conversation because like you said, not everybody gets it, Right. And you're talking to them and they kind of staring at you. You know, I know people who don't believe in allergies. So Lord knows when you try to talk about something more complex, like anxiety, people are just going to be staring at you. Well, I hope for the day that all of these topics are normalized, that no matter if we're talking about anxiety or allergies or even racism, people don't pause, question, undermine the true reality that you as a person are experiencing something. And you are reaching out for someone to listen. And if you can't find anybody to listen, I love how Miss Franklin said, that's why they're there at Healing Grounds, because some people don't have family and friends to talk to. And that's why they're there to make sure they have a good therapist to talk to. Before you drop off, um, Tavara, anything last um, words you would like to share with us? Um, I'm
2: going to say that, you know, for this, for As we are celebrating the last few days of Mental Health Awareness Month, me and May, um, I want to say that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to receive help. It does not mean that you are weak. It does not mean that you are incompetent or incapable. It just means that you need a little bit of support. And that shows the value and strength in yourself and in you to be able to want to go and reach the highest capacity for yourself to be able to thrive in this life that we call life. Okay, so that is my last tip. I hope to reach out and see some of you guys um, on my live tomorrow. And if you need anything, please reach out to us.
0: Awesome, Tamika dropped it in the chat where you guys can follow Miss Franklin tomorrow on her Instagram live. Make sure you check out her Instagram. I'm telling y'all she's always ready for the camera. She's always dropping just, common sense. And that's another thing. If you can't afford therapy, if you can't get to one, I know you can get to her IG live because I'm telling you those videos and those snippets are like nice sermons. So especially, you know, if you're in need, so make sure you check it out.
1: Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for discussion with the audience.